Well, we're going to dive right into this passage, and it's a little bit more lengthy passage. And so I'd like to read all of this for us, verses 35 through 58. And much of this will sound familiar, particularly after listening to that excerpt. And then we'll start covering it, but not necessarily verse by verse, but topic by topic, because some of Paul's verses are actually restatements or parallel verses with one another. So don't worry, we're not going to take till 2 p.m. to get through this today. Starting at verse 35, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, 
and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. May the Lord add his blessing and illumination to the reading of his word. The imperishable body is something that has been a mystery and a very difficult mystery for human beings to grasp all throughout history. Just for some immediate context, as we dive into what Paul has just given us here, he gave us a few things previously just in this very same chapter because he wanted to set the stage by talking about the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the resurrection. He wanted to ask, what do, what do the scriptures say about it? What is the authority behind it? And then he wanted to talk to us about evidence. What do the eyewitnesses say? And then logic. What if there was no resurrection? What would life be like? That's what we looked at last week. We looked at sort of a, it's a wonderful life type of situation. When he said, if there was no resurrection, these would be the consequences. But fortunately, there has been, and therefore, and then he gave all the benefits. And then we see this shift in tone where we picked up today. In verse 35, Paul moves from being an apologist, arguing for the doctrine of resurrection, to being a pastor. He's showing why the resurrection matters, and he's pointing people to the source of their hope. He moves from proving his point to pastoring his people by pressing his point. Say that three times fast. He starts by answering a question, whether he actually heard the question being asked at one point, or if he's imagining one of his listeners as this letter would be read out loud to the people he's addressing it to, somebody might have that question. But someone will ask, he says, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Now, before Christ's resurrection, Human beings, people, knew a thing or two about death. All of us know about death. If you've ever had a pet hamster or a pet goldfish, you know about death. There are things that happen early in life that unfortunately break in on us and give us the sad reality that things live and things die. And when they die, they're gone and they're gone forever. But the resurrection does something. Until Jesus came along, human beings just didn't know about resurrection or life after death. But because Jesus came along, now we have a prototype, as was mentioned last week. We have someone who gave us empirical evidence, someone who actually did come back. That's why Dinsdale T. Young wrote this. They sometimes tell us that no one has ever come back from the other world to give us assurance of it, but that's not so. Christ came back. He authenticated the unseen universe. And now amid all the proofs of immortality, no evidence is so decisive as the resurrection of our Lord. Dinsdale was telling us, we do have evidence. We have empirical evidence, eyewitness evidence that somebody has indeed come back from the dead. And so therefore, now we have something to build our faith on when it comes to life after this life on earth. 
Paul is trying to show us a lot of parallels, and he does so at different levels. And he's saying that the dead will be raised imperishable. It's not something that's just the nihilists would say, once you're gone, you're gone, and you're just worm food, and that's it. This life is all you've got. He's saying, no, the dead will be raised, and they're going to be raised imperishable. The perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, a life that goes on forever. I have found a really nice show that I enjoy on Netflix, and it's called The Repair Shop. <clears throat> they have old items that have historic significance, or at least significance to the families that own these treasures. And they bring them into the repair shop, and people with great skill restore these items. And they repair them. Very often there are broken pieces and they have to repair those. Or if it's a glass piece, they have to glue it. And then they have to paint over it so you can't tell that it was ever broken before. And so it's repaired and they look almost as good as new. It's pretty incredible. And I love to see that kind of craftsmanship. But Paul is saying what happens to us as believers when we die, he doesn't take us to a repair shop. We're not merely patched over. They don't put a little bondo in the cracks and a little paint on the outside. We're better than we were before. We're not just repaired. We're completely restored. And we're restored to a new kind of glory that's not found on earth. My very first memorable encounter with death, I had encountered death with pets and things like that, but I'd never encountered death of a human before my cousin Mickey passed away. He was swimming with a bunch of Boy Scouts across a lake, and some of the boys turned around and looked behind them because he had been keeping up with them, and suddenly he was gone. He just disappeared. People suspect that maybe he had gotten a cast off a couple of weeks ago from a broken leg, and that maybe he'd gotten a cramp in that leg and just couldn't keep up, and he drowned. So we drove to another state, went to the funeral, and I sat there wondering what death was like I had previously walked up to the casket, looked at him, stared at him, watched that chest, because you always have that sense that just maybe it's going to start rising and falling again, that maybe some breath will come into that body. Clearly, intellectually, I knew that was not so, but you still kind of have those feelings. And then I was thinking about an analogy that the pastor started speaking about at his funeral. He talked about a kernel of wheat. He talked about this passage that we're looking at today about something that may look dead on the outside, but unless that wheat dies, there won't be any future for that wheat. And then this kernel falls to the ground, and then the rains come, and the sun beats down on it. And eventually, when it comes forth, it comes forth with fruitfulness, better than it was before. And he said, and that's just a picture. It's just an analogy. It's a hint. It's a glimpse of what Paul is trying to teach us in this passage. Jesus Christ, of course, is the one who showed us what resurrection is really like, because he literally died, was literally buried, and literally came to life again because of God's power. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. This is something that's so common in this thread that weaves its way through Paul's theology, and Christ is at the center of this particular theme. 
we know that that's why Paul can say later and in some of his other letters that we too have to die. We have to die to self. We have to pick up our cross, which is an instrument of death. And vicariously, we connect ourselves with Jesus Christ. We identify with what he did for us so that the old nature, the old sinful part of us dies so that we can be resurrected with Christ to walk with him in a new life as a new creature. That's the symbol of baptism. That's what we picture. And all of you who have been baptized have preached a sermon without speaking words because you've shown exactly what this principle is all about. Remember that Paul's audience were people with a mixture of opinions and philosophies about life after death. He said there were some people who were ignorant. He'd mentioned that a few verses earlier before we hit verse 35. And he's not saying that to be rude to them. There is a nice way of saying ignorant, which means just devoid of facts. You don't have the facts at your disposal. You don't know something until you know something. So there were people with no information about it. And you might understand why they would have difficulty buying into a concept of life after this life. But then there were those people who did have evidence. And he started addressing some of those people, especially the Jewish believers who had been talked to by apostles who had given them this eyewitness evidence. And he's saying, it's different for you. You ought to know better. You had eyewitness evidence. He says, it's one thing not to know something and to doubt, but to place your faith in something because you've seen it with your own eyes and to have strong empirical evidence and then start falling back into doubt again. He said, you need to come to your senses. Stop it, he says. I find that myself saying that a lot with Paul. <laughs> Just stop it. Paul's harsh sounding words. He says, how foolish. It's understandable to doubt something you know nothing about, but it's foolish to doubt something when you have abundant evidence. And those are the people to whom he says, how foolish. God may be speaking to you today already through this passage and through your breakfast. And I'm not talking about like alphabet soup that arranges itself and suddenly there's a message staring up at you. But whatever you had for breakfast, assuming you had some sort of breakfast, chances are it was at one point dead and then it was reformed in another form and you were able to ingest it. Isn't that great? And because you may have actually had some shredded wheat or some wheat checks or something of that nature, then God is really speaking to you through this passage and through your cereal, because that's exactly what Paul is talking about. It dies, it's buried, comes back in a different form. But in his case, he starts to unpack the different layers, the different kinds of glories or splendors that await every body, and all these bodies are different. The resurrection in these final verses that Paul gives in chapter 15 shows us some things about our anthropology, our understanding of the character of mankind, our soteriology, our understanding of salvation itself, and our missiology. Those of us who are in Christ, what is our mission? What is it we're supposed to do now that we understand who we are made in God's image and how we are saved? What are we supposed to do with this knowledge and this new creation status? Well, let's look at the first one, anthropology. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood. The son also became flesh and blood. He shows us there's something inherently valuable about being a human. God could have 
passed by all that stuff. He could have come in any form. I had one professor in college who said, I know you're going to think I'm blasphemous for saying this. He said, but if God had chosen to come incarnate as an elephant, he could have done that. He's God. He could have chosen any form he wanted to. Why would he have chosen to come in the form of a little baby implanted by the Holy Spirit into a womb of a woman? And then to experience every aspect of human life, just as we humans do, because there's something valuable about that. God wanted us to know that there is value in the entire human experience. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. That's that final uh, enemy that we talked about a little bit earlier. That's why God chose to do everything through himself incarnate as a human to show us the value of being made in his image. And it was only through his form, a sinless uh, sacrifice for us, a holy sacrifice, the unblemished lamb that made him capable of paying the penalty of sin. So think about that. As our anthropology, Christ took on flesh the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He died in the flesh, literally died. He didn't just swoon or faint. He was buried in the flesh. People were there. They saw it. The women brought spices to the tomb. He rose again in the flesh. Witnesses got to the tomb and saw that he was no longer there. Nobody knew who had taken the body because they hadn't. He'd, uh, he had risen. And then he ascended in the flesh. We understand that because of future events that happened after he had appeared to witnesses. So all of this was in the flesh. That's important. It's important for us to know, to know that God thinks that our human experience, our flesh, is valuable. And then Paul starts contrasting these different kinds of flesh, verses 39 through 41. And you'll notice that he sort of takes a reverse order from creation. Starts with people, which was really the crowning achievement and the final uh, form of creation in Genesis, and he goes backwards from that. And then there are animals, and there are birds, and there are fish. All of those living beings have a different kind of flesh, and they have a different kind of glory or splendor, which means something that's worthy of honor. And humans have a different kind of glory or honor than every other type of species. So that's why if you're driving along on a vacation, and you're on the freeway, and you notice that the traffic has started to back up and people have slowed down and we have to go over one lane. And so everybody is zippering over into that left lane. And then as you start to creep closer, you understand that there are emergency vehicles ahead on the side of the road. And there's an awful accident. And they've tried to move people out of the way so that the EMTs can attend to those who need help. And then when you see the state of the car, you understand, oh, I doubt that anybody could survive that. And you could be laughing and singing or, uh, or making jokes just moments before you understand what's going on with that. And then there's something that hits every one of us and sobers us up if we think that perhaps there's a person in that vehicle who's passed away. Why is that? Because there's some inherent value to every single person. And it's a different kind of value than in every other kind of animal. Now, I know that you probably are very squeamish about seeing a dead deer at the side of the road, or especially a, a dead pet, if you were to see a cat or a dog that you think, oh, somebody lost their pet. It, it hits you in certain ways. But to see a human being, 
it hits you even deeper because there's something different and deeper and longer lasting. Why is that? Because we were made in, the, in God's image. There's something profound about the splendor of a human being in comparison with every other kind of creature on the earth. And then Paul goes into a, something that has to do with soteriology, salvation itself, because he's connecting Christ's flesh with salvation and showing why his prototype resurrection is important to us, because we know now that we can have a resurrection because of what he did for us and that we have his salvation. Sown perishable, these are the contrasts, raised imperishable. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown natural, raised spiritual. They're different types of flesh, and yet, in a whole different plane, not just different types of flesh like we would see with a bird or an animal or a fish, but also, he's saying, there are different types of glory de depending on whether you're still on earth or whether you've resurrected and gone to heaven. Different types of glory in human flesh between the earthly glory and the heavenly glory. So then he transitions from there into the, his uh, discussion about the first Adam and the last Adam, or in some translations, the second Adam. First Adam, of course, being the first human being made in the flesh, the one who came from the dust of the earth, and then the last or second Adam being Jesus Christ, who is the heavenly man. The first Adam was a living being. God breathed the breath of life into him. From the dust he came, and God brought that and animated it. He brought it to life. And then there was this last Adam, which is a spiritual being who's able to do something that the earthly being can't because it's a different kind of glory, different splendor. First Adam was natural. The last Adam is spiritual. First man from the earth, from the dust. The last man from heaven. And Paul is saying that we are also of the earth. So we are like that first Adam. All of us share these qualities together. We're born like the earthly man. But for those of us who are in Christ, we're going to bear the image of the man of heaven. That second or last Adam. And then all this is possible only because of our union with Christ. Galatians 3, 26 through 27 is a good parallel passage for this. It says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ, there's that communion in baptism, have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. And he's not saying here that it's the act of baptism physically that saves you. He's talking about being in Christ, being unified with him through the Holy Spirit so that you're immersed in him, that he is all around you and in you like oxygen, and that so that we are immersed literally in the spirit of Christ himself. It's like putting on new clothes. That's why this comparison has always been made with the cloak of righteousness, that Jesus takes his cloak of righteousness off as he ascends to the cross and then he descends into the tomb and then ascends again to be with his father. But he's placed his cloak of righteousness over us so that we're covered by him. That's why people would say we're covered by the blood and that that blood cleanses us of all unrighteousness and turns our sins from being crimson to being as white as snow. Some great poetic analogies there, but it's very literal in the fact that he has cleansed us of sin. And then in Ephesians 4.24, and put on the new nature. See this putting on, putting on a new cloak of righteousness or the robe of righteousness? 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We can do that through our union with Christ, and we do it through faith, not because of our works. So we know that it speaks, the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ speaks to our anthropology. It also speaks to the soteriology, or salvation. And then we think, okay, well, now that we know who we are as a man or a woman, because we're made in Christ's image, now that we know that he has saved us and that we can appropriate this salvation through faith in Christ, what is it we're supposed to do? What's our mission? He gives that to us in verses 54 through 58. When, not if, but when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That's the verse I heard at my cousin's funeral. And I saw people nodding their heads, and a few of them said, amen. And I thought, these people really believe what this pastor is talking about. And I can sense that there was a lightness that started to come into my being, because as I had stood earlier at that casket and looked at my cousin, or at least his dead body, which was left behind, I felt like somebody had poured concrete into my arms and legs, and I felt the heaviness of the weight of death. But as the pastor started talking about death being swallowed up in victory, I felt lighter. I felt lighter in my spirit. There was still grief, obviously, but there's hope for every one of us who knows that the person who's lying in that casket has trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Their soteriology has been taken care of because of what Christ did as the first fruits because he died, was buried, and rose again. So here's the universal question. This is the question that's going to come to every single one of us as humans. How can I avoid being defeated by that last enemy of death? A lot of people are trying real hard. Good diets, a lot of exercise. Uh, there was a funny book. I think the guy's name was Dave Barry. We used to have a lot of chuckles about him. He had a, a column in the Miami Herald newspaper, and then he wrote several books that were humor books. And the, I remember the title of one of his books because it connects with this theme. It was called Stay Fit and Healthy Until You Die. That's kind of what some people are trying to do. I'm going to diet and exercise and be as healthy as I can. Oh, yeah, but I'm still going to die, aren't I? We can try to have enough faith, and we can think, man, if I just have enough faith, maybe I can overcome this last enemy, too. Sadly, I've seen evidence, close evidence that there are people who thought maybe they had that much faith, that they could literally raise one of their loved ones from the dead after they had died. And it was, it, it just breaks your heart to see that they couldn't do it. And then they doubted their faith. And my question to them would be, where are you getting your information from? Because we're all going to die. As far as I can tell, the mortality rate is still 100% for humans. And even if they could have brought somebody back from the dead temporarily, they're still going to have to live through all the stuff that we have to deal with on earth. And then they would still have to die again, physically, so that they can enjoy their immortality. We can't whip the devil. We can't whip the last enemy of death. So, how can we avoid being defeated by the last enemy? Well, here's the good news. This is the gospel. <laughs> We're working really hard not to die because we understand there is something inherently beautiful 
and valuable in being a human being. We see death as our enemy because of our anthropology. We see that as being an enemy that we'd like to be able to overcome because of being made in God's image. But we can overcome this enemy, not in our own strength, not through diet and exercise, not through a tremendous amount of super faith, but because of what Christ Jesus has done by placing our faith in him, we can overcome this enemy. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? One of my occupational hazards as a minister is that I've been to an awful lot of funerals. I've preached quite a few of them. And I've seen such a difference between people who appeared to have no hope after this life and people who had assurance that their loved one was going to be in heaven, they were experiencing eternity in God's presence at that moment. So different. It was that way with my cousin. I'm grateful that he's there because I get to see him again. And I'm grateful that that was my first experience because I thought, oh, death is not that bad. And it doesn't have to be because we can overcome this enemy by placing our faith in the one who overcame the last enemy, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. The sting of death, Paul goes on to expand his thought and to show us what kind of sting he's talking about. The sting of death is sin. When it says, death, where is thy sting? Where is the sin? Where's the evidence that sin has conquered you? Well, sin has been conquered. Jesus Christ took care of that. That's what he did for us on the cross. So sin has been dealt with. The power of sin is the law. He's fulfilled the law. So both sin and the law have been completely dealt with by Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's why we can place our faith in him and overcome the last enemy of death. Remember the acorn analogy, which I've mentioned, mentioned several times. There are two ways to get rid of an acorn. One is to smash it, obliterate it. The other is to plant it. The way to do this, especially according to Paul's analogy of the wheat that falls to the ground, is to plant it. Jesus Christ was planted for us. He fulfilled the law. Everything was fulfilled through him, and it fulfills the purpose of the law, just like the acorn is fulfilled in its purpose by becoming a great oak, better than it was before, not just repaired, but restored. So that's why at a believer's funeral, you can hear, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see people celebrating and cheering and saying, yes, amen. I agree with that. Sounds like a strange thing to say at a funeral if you're on the outside looking in. But if you understand where we grab this celebration from, it makes total sense. Here comes a therefore gets real close to the end of all this stuff. And then Paul drops another little truth, a nugget of truth on us. And he says, therefore, my dear brothers, because we know about our anthropology, we know that we're made in God's image. We know that there's inherent value in being a human being. That's different value than any other being on the planet. Because we know where our soteriology lies, our salvation, we know where that comes from. It comes through Christ who paid the penalty of sin for us on the cross died, was buried, rose again, appeared to witnesses, ascended to be with the Father. Because of all that, and because we have a mission to help prepare other people, don't let anything move you. 
Our mission is to prepare other people to meet God. I know in the old Westerns, they'd say, prepare to meet your maker. And that sounds a little silly and it sounds trite, but when you think about it, that really is the mission of we as believers to help other people get ready to meet God because we are all going to meet God one day. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, he says. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What kind of labor? What labor is he talking about? Is it just anything we do? Is it what we do on the job? Is it doing dishes around the house? Is it, what is that? Well, there's context. We have to go all the way back, back up to the beginning of the passage where Paul's talking about why would we put ourselves through this? Why would we put ourselves in jeopardy or in peril for the sake of the gospel? And that's what this is talking about. Paul is saying anything we do for the gospel will not be in vain because everything we do for the gospel matters. Because Christ's resurrection is real, stand firm. Don't give up. Don't lose your grip on Jesus. Don't despair. Don't become overcome with grief. Don't start to doubt what you've already seen with your own eyes because you, you've seen empirical evidence that God takes care of his people, even though there are difficulties that we have to move through here on earth. Everything you do for the sake of the gospel is not in vain. And then I'm going to take us over to something that we studied way early on in 1 Corinthians, because he was talking about some plant, some water, some reap the harvest. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is God makes the seed grow. So depending on our shape, our spiritual gifts, our heart, our abilities, our personalities, our experiences, no matter what God has gifted us with, whatever we put forth for the sake of the gospel, it's going to matter. Somebody's going to be affected by it. That's why we need each other as community, because it takes the whole church. It takes every single one of us to take the shape of Jesus Christ for somebody else. Somebody, somebody may have the gift of mercy, and you're a mercy shower, and you pour that out. That's a way of pouring some water onto that seed. Other people are great teachers, and so they expound God's word. That's another way of planting the seeds, the seeds of truth from the gospel. Others are really good at evangelism, and they know how to press people for an answer and to say, well, do you have any reason why you shouldn't accept this truth? And they can lead people into their walk of faith with Christ. It takes all of us to do that. And everything that any of us does for the sake of the gospel is not going to come back in vain. It's going to matter. So our mission, in summary, all this instruction that Paul has given us in this whole chapter, chapter 15, about the resurrection shows us that our mission is to prepare people to meet God. And I have to ask, I assume most of you, if you're people that I've been familiar with in our walk with the Lord together in community, you've probably already taken that step of faith to say, yes, I have trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior, but I don't know that for sure. Only God knows the heart. And only God knows for sure who all is signed in here today. I can't see the list. <laughs> and so I'm just going to ask everybody here, are you prepared? Have you trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you said, I know I can't get to heaven on my own good works. I understand now that there is inherent value in every human being, including me, and that Christ loved me enough to give up himself to die in my place as a substitute through that substitutionary atonement on the cross 
so that I could have eternity in his presence. I choose to accept his forgiveness for my sin, and I choose to place my trust in him because of the empirical evidence that he's provided through eyewitnesses recorded a very short time after all these events really took place in history. I choose Christ. If you choose to do that, then you can walk alongside every single other person who is a saved sinner. None of us are any better than anybody else, but we're all on this journey together, helping point people to the source of our salvation. That's our mission. Love for everybody to join together in this mission, together, because we are a community of faith. And the more people who join us in doing that, the more we pour ourselves out in our God-given gifts, for the sake of the gospel, the easier it's going to be for us to stand firm, even though we're assailed by things that would tend to try to discourage us. Let's encourage one another and let's stand firm on our firm foundation, who is Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation, the foundation of our faith, the cornerstone of the church, and the one who made it possible for us to have this kind of faith forever, knowing that we will become imperishable eventually. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that if there's anybody who needs to take that step, they will do so, because I believe with all my heart that you have made a way for all of us, and that if we're in Christ, we will be made imperishable one day, and we'll stand before you not ashamed because of our sin, but we'll be standing beside Christ who can say, he or she is with me, and therefore they're covered their sin is non-existent because I've thrown it into the deepest ocean. They're with me because they're mine, my beloved child. I've adopted them into the family of God. And Father, I pray that all of us would regain that sense of wonder, understanding the splendor of Christ and what he did for us so that one day we can truly look into God's face and understand the awe-inspiring beauty of a God that loves us that much. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.